Hey, Carl here. You know, there's something new from our friends at Text Control. TX Text Control supports the integration of legally binding electronic document signatures into your ASP.NET Core web applications. Simply use Microsoft Word documents, prepare them using the Text Control online editor, and request signatures from signers. It works just like well-known e-sign services, but runs on-premises in your infrastructure without sending and storing documents somewhere else. To showcase typical workflows and the Text Control electronic signature technology, they published a fully functional demo that can be used to create and request signatures, sign documents, and to validate executed PDF files. See the demo at esign.textcontrol.com. That's esign.textcontrol.com. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're, uh, wow, this is going to be a very special episode of uh, .NET Rocks. We're talking to some Microsoft peeps about Visual Studio 2022. That's a lot of Visual Studio PM in the room today. That really sure. is. And the room is very virtual because we're all in our respective homes. <laughs> yeah, but it's good. It's going to be really good. Uh, mm. I guarantee you're going to learn something before the hour is out. Uh, starting with... Better Know Framework. Awesome. Roll the music. All right, man, what do you got? Well, by the time this comes out, this will be a couple weeks old. But, you know, uh, Richard, we used to have .NET Rocks podcast apps in the app stores. Back in the day, yeah. Because we were before podcast was a word. So we ended up having to invent a lot of things. Yeah, exactly. Well, they're not there anymore. Obviously, they're. I even that's a good thing. Yeah, they're not there. So I decided what I would do is on my uh, YouTube show, the .NET show, mm-hmm. is I would show people how to create a podcast consumer app using Xamarin Forms, and at the end of it, we're actually going to come out with we're going to we're going to end up with a .NET Rocks custom app. So interesting, including publishing it to the App Store. So we will have a .NET Rocks app. And if you're interested in those videos, go to the .NET show.com and start with episode two, because that's sort of an introduction to Xamarin Forms and all the different ways that you can debug and use emulators and whatever and connect your phones and devices. And uh, then we just start rolling with so you know, you're going to do a series basically of building out the .NET Rocks app. That's right. That's cool. And, you know, I I heard a lot of complaints from people in the Blazor community saying that there's a lot of demos, you know, using counter and whatever, but there really aren't a whole lot of real world applications, you know, that we can see being built, you know, right. piece at a time. So that's why I'm doing it. That's a good idea. Yeah. I like it. The .net show.com. No, learn it. Love it. Nice. Who's talking to us, my friend? I uh, grabbed a comment off of show 1663 which is one we did with one Kendra Havens, maybe you heard of her. Oh, yeah. Uh, talking about Visual Studio 2019 productivity, uh, published back in November of 2019. And I picked it from this show because all our, my alternative choice is the only one of our guests that has been on the show before is Anthony. But that was back in, in 2008, oh episode God. 405. And that's just like a little bit too long ago. I was a teenager back then. That's a long time ago. So... <laughs> 
But, uh, I mean, VS2019 productivity, clearly Kendra's Ballywick too, right? She yeah. knows, uh, she dug deeply into that space. And Wayne Hiller has this comment. It's from about a year ago. So it's an excellent show as always. I love listening to Kendra. The timing of the show was great because the just the next week, I decided to enable code analyzers. Nice. Using FX cop as well as the null reference type in my solution with 218 projects in it. <laughs> I was amazed the number of warnings could actually go that high. <laughs> I love the ability to change severity and suppress uh, errors from the IDE. I do have one core 3.0 project, and this is back in 2019, uh, that causes the IDE to throw an exception when changing the severity from the IDE. All in all, I love it, though. Applying all the suggestions can only make me a better developer in the long run. So thank you, Kendra, for being so passionate about the tools I use every day. You and the team are making my life better with every release. You know, that's a really good tip on how to get rid of bugs in your application. Just suppress the errors. That's it. If you turn the knob down, if the error doesn't get raised, it doesn't really it exist. It doesn't really count. Yeah. That's the important part. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, Wayne, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code by is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code by, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the social media as we publish every show to Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code by. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet and use the uh, dash S for suppress the errors. <laughs> <laughs> You had a lot of errors in your tweets there, do you? Yeah, all the time. All okay. the time. I'm always getting errors. It's because I don't learn the syntax. <laughs> That's what IntelliSense <laughs> is for. I don't need to know the syntax. <laughs> I just keep typing till the squiggles go away. Exactly. All right. Now, let us introduce our guest. Anthony Cangelosi is a principal group PM of Visual Studio Core at Microsoft and a .NET Rocks former guest. Simon Calvert is a director of program management and developer division at Microsoft and considers himself lucky to have some great teams that work across the Visual Studio platform, visualstudio.com and subscriptions, and specifically developer services. Andy Sterling is also here. He's a dev tools product person currently working on the debugger and diagnostic tools in Visual Studio at Microsoft. The perfect group of people to tell us all about Visual Studio 2022. Welcome, everybody. Okay, a remarkably quiet bunch. This might be a short show. Hello? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's probably my fault. It's my fault because as a host, you should never say welcome, everybody, because then not everybody knows when to respond. So, one at a time. Welcome, Andy. It's great to be here. Welcome, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Again. And welcome, Simon. Yeah, excited to be here. Excellent. We're all here. Welcome, Richard. Glad to be here too, friend. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate Anthony. It was a long time ago that you were last on the show. Episode 405, and this is what, 1739. So, yeah. you know, 1300 shows you ago. But you were with Rico Mariani at the time. The two of you came on to talk about Visual Studio extensibility. Are you going to tell the, the story? In the 2008 time frame. 
But and I think Rico's no longer with the company. Actually, he's moved on. Although, wait, did, did I see he works for Facebook now? I don't even know what to say about that. Uh, he has moved on. Yeah, I do, I do remember that. That was an interesting time. Rico was a great person to work with. I've, I've learned a lot from him. Um, I, I just want to say up front that we're not doing 64-bit despite Rico. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> it was the first thing I thought of when I saw the blog post about 64-bit. It's like, didn't we ask Rico Mariani about that like a million years ago? And he was pretty adamant that it wasn't going to buy us anything. Yeah. I, and I, I think that was the show that had me really realize that we mythologize 64-bit. That somehow mm. if you make something 64-bit, everything will be good. And in reality, it doesn't really nothing changes, right? You just have access to more memory, which may or may not help anything. There are certainly some things that get better, and there are a new set of problems that, that you have to introduce and, and deal with. And Rico certainly realized that early on. Um, and, you know, he had some really interesting points that certainly drove our perspective for, for a long time and have added a great deal of value in terms of moving more of our um, operations out of process, uh, which, which gave us uh, more freedom to paralyze. But, um, you know, there, there's uh, only so much you can do before you have to really free up uh, Visual Studio itself to give it more room and memory. And um, I don't know, Andy, you yeah. know, you've really been driving a lot of the charge today in terms of that perspective. If anything, I've been a little too biased by Rico in the past, you know, what do you think about our changes today? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first point is like, you know, back when you last talked about that, that was 2008 and we're a long way from there now. And, and so the, the same things aren't necessarily true in terms of, you know, if you think about yeah, it. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, like now memory is so much more available. Like, you know, it, <laughs> yeah. Like you said, it's not a magic bullet. Yeah. Like it's not going to solve everything. And the question to like, Hey, is it going to make VS faster? The answer is it depends. And it really does depend on what customers are doing, but it's certainly. Uh, allows customers with, you know, take more advantage of their hardware. And, you know, it is 2021 now, and there's a lot of workloads that can benefit um, from having that extra capacity to use, that extra memory to use. It doesn't mean you should not use Dispose and, you know, you shouldn't <laughs> worry about memory leaks. I mean, granted, the conversation around Dispose and all that stuff went silent after 64-bit. I remember that exclusively. But that doesn't mean that you still have to allow memory leaks just because your system can now absorb them probably easier. That, it doesn't mean I'm making 64-bit apps either, right? right? I'm still clearly – there are – my experience, especially in the web app world and things like that, like there's just no reason to compile a 64-bit. You, you tend to compile as 32-bit. Unless you need that memory. Yeah, I mean, we're not changing anything about how customers can build apps or type of apps they can build. Like Visual Studio has always supported building app types and app, you know, bit. Like for example, we support ARM as a target platform. You can remotely debug and mm. target ARM, you know, and things like that. So mm -hmm. it's no reflection on what your apps are capable of in Visual Studio. And as you mentioned, each app is kind of has to make its own decision. You know, whatever's best for it. And it's hard to say. Like there's no you know simple rule that says like, hey, 64 bit is always for the win. It's not going to be. It depends upon what you're doing. Sure. All we know for sure is compile any is a mistake. <laughs> I don't go that far, but uh <laughs> wait a minute, is it? Why is it? Why well, is any my CPU a mistake? Yeah, my experience compile any was was great as long as you were always running it on 32-bit machines. Because as soon as you tried to run it on a 64-bit machine, it crashed. Because the chances that you had your 64-bit driver set up correctly and you know it actually tested the app properly. That's running on the problem, other components. Yeah. I think. Yeah, it is. I don't, I don't think that problem exists anymore. But but I, I don't think we tend to do that anymore either. Yeah, I mean, hopefully you're testing your app in 64-bit, on certainly on 64-bit OSs, since they don't make 32-bit Windows client OSs anymore. Right. 
I guess that's another aspect of this, which is just like a lot of stuff is 64-bit. Office is 64-bit. So why wouldn't we be? Because everybody needs a 50 megabyte gigabyte Word doc. Everybody. We got to embed all our PowerPoints in there, (laughs) all our 4K images and videos. Oh, yeah. Got to put that 32 gigs of RAM to good use. Yeah. That's right. How did you guys know what I do? (laughs) (laughs) This is Simon's job is really big PowerPoint (laughs) tech. The more videos, the better. I I think running (laughs) lots and lots of 32-bit applications in 64-bit windows is really the way that most people work, right? Um, There aren't a whole lot of cases, you know, in the software that I run, except for maybe, you know, the Adobe Suite, Premiere, and, uh, you know, stuff that works with big files where I need all that 64-bit stuff. So why does Visual Studio... Uh, what is Visual Studio gain for going 64-bit? Do we really need to load 2,000 projects at the same time? Is that the reason, or is that just a side effect? I mean, you do if you've got 2,000 projects. I suppose you're right. But, uh, <laughs> which might not be your choice, to be fair. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, the, yeah. I, I think, you know, for the, the advantages, again, it, it really goes back to there are some sets of customers that do really benefit from this because, you know, it's not just the large files, but use over time. Like, if you keep Visual open for days, yeah. you're going to grow memory. Like, it's inevitable. Um, just because you're right. doing stuff like in those things you mentioned, like Photoshop, people live in those tools too. And they have the same sort of challenges. Oh, yeah. Whereas, you know, other apps perhaps you use don't have the same challenges that people are living in them constantly, essentially for days on end and are doing heavy workloads. So it's really, you know, it's appropriate for Visual Studio. It's may or may not be the right choice for everybody else. It's kind of up to your app. So currently in Visual Studio 2019, I can compile to a 64 bit application, right? Yeah, Absolutely. All right. So if that application, while I'm developing it, needs to have access to more than, what is it, four gigs of RAM, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Then uh, what happens in development? Like, uh, as I say, you're building an app, like the, the, the Visual Studio components at design time, like all the editing tools and the runtime, mm-hmm. all the debugging tools are independent of the business of the app that you're target, you're building. Um, so okay. like the, you can kind of like a joke, you can build an app that's targeting a phone or, you know, an arm device or another thing. And they're, they're independent from what, you know, Visual Studio's needs are and things like that. So almost most of the tools and pretty much all of them are set up to be able to target, you know, cross bitness. Um, but what I mean is that you're building a 64 bit app that will target 64 bit. And let's say you're building the next, you know, premiere video editor you want to test this out you only have a 32-bit infrastructure with which to work right in visual studio or do you have to compile it and then test it with lots and lots of uh you know big files or whatever whatever it needs to load in memory in order to test the limits of uh what it can hold so it it depends on the sort of tools you're using for testing like many tests run their own processes like unit tests or other things Uh, and so again they're not running inside visual studio uh, in the main dev end process. But inside Visual Studio, you have four gigs of RAM available, and that's it. In the right? main dev end process, but Visual Studio today is not just one process, as Anthony mentioned earlier. Sure. It's many. So things like compilers, for example, have always run out of process, and they can do whatever they want, and they choose the fitness that's appropriate for the task at hand. Um, so many of the tools work that way today. It's really just some of the core dev end uh, you know, experiences that are changing to be 64-bit. 
So I, I just want to be clear on this. If I write a new 64-bit targeted console app, let's say, and I load up a 5-gigabyte file in Visual Studio 2019, that's 32 gig, and I load it up and I want it all in memory, is it going to break in Visual Studio? Will it not allow me to load that in? Because I do have 64-bit types in Visual Studio, but what happens in there? I mean, I know if I compiled it and I ran it, if it's 64-bit, it would have the memory allocation that I need. But what happens in Visual Studio if I try to do that today? And, and so in this case, Visual Studio is trying to open that 5-gig file. Yeah. So it, it, unfortunately, it depends. So uh, I think quite a few of the language services and other things, they run out of process and they can virtualize. You know, it's, it's a very common thing oh. to like virtualize the actual that the the file reading essentially because presumably you're not going to fit all five gig at the screen at the same time um, unless it's right. a very super imagine, imaginary dense file um, so you know mm. you can virtualize and read subsections of it um, so but it, it kind of depends on what language service it is what file type it is what the reader is because you know Visual Studio has an image editor so I wouldn't be surprised if you try to open a five gig image in Visual Studio that fold over um, that's what I thought yeah I, I think you're it's going to go. But if you've got a five gig image, you, should, you, 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 yeah. you can term. always shoot yourself in the foot. That's always a possibility. Right. Yeah. But first, it'll make you wait a really <laughs> long time. Yeah. yeah. You sure you want to open this? <laughs> right. 21 mega sure gigapixel. I didn't say it was a good idea. <laughs> I just said, what's going to happen? So, so the developer experience when dealing with large files is going to be easier in a 64 bit Visual Studio clearly yeah and I, I don't know if the limitation we've ever really encountered is single file viewing like hopefully there's not right. too many people with a five gig c-sharp file out there no 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 of course not yeah yeah it, it sounds like a refactoring opportunity just, <laughs> just a guess <laughs> <laughs> but i've got three million lines of code in one function <laughs> yeah this the function do stuff. <laughs> do stuff <laughs> it has one parameter which is an xml file <laughs> oh, God. uh but it also begs the question, like, what's going 64-bit then? I mean, already, right. Visual Studio is a bunch of software. It is a bunch of processes. So is it devenv.exe? It's like, that's what's now going to be 64-bit? Yep. Some of which actually has already gone to 64-bit. You know, some of our debugger components had, been, had switched over to 64-bit. Was it in uh, Visual Studio 2017? Uh, that we introduced a 64-bit version of our debugger, which allowed us to attach to huge processes uh, in, in those releases. And so we've been really on this journey for, for a while, long before. It's really kind of the last stage of that journey is bringing DevMVEXE, the, the process that's running the shell of Visual Studio, that's loading all of the extensions into Visual Studio, all the um, language services, and the project system, and when you take those components, combine them with huge solutions and the bigger solution, the solutions that are getting bigger and bigger, that we were really starting to hit the upper limits of, of what that four gigabyte memory address space could, could really do for us. And there was only so much we could move out of process before we really had to kind of uh, expand the, the, the break the glass ceiling of Visual Studio. So I, I suspect that for the past few years, you've been, okay, let's pull that out of process. Let's pull that out of process. And at some point, it's like, I've run out of things to pull out of process. I just need more room. Exactly. Hmm. What's going to break? Extensions. Is the, the, yeah, the, that's the, what I was thinking. It's like, 
I have a bunch of stuff that I install into Visual Studio that I kind of, it's not my Visual Studio till it's there. I think Mads is going to be a little mad. <laughs> you mean Mads Christensen? Yeah. Hopefully we can talk him off his ledge, but. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I've got 40,000 extensions that need to be recompiled. <laughs> He's already trying. He's already trying. Yeah, and he had a show yeah. just recently on this topic of uh, moving extensions to 64-bit. Oh, good. On the bright side, though, our our extenders have been super excited about this. As much as we're breaking yeah. them, you know, you've never seen a group so excited to be broken uh, <laughs> as as our ecosystem <laughs> partners. And, sure. and we certainly are very deliberate about that. But in this particular case, you know, this is, uh, this, is a, this floats all boats a little higher, right? Like that, uh, our, our extensions that load, uh, actually load into the Visual Studio process most of the time. And so that increased uh, address space that we're making available mm-hmm. now through Visual Studio, uh, not only gives more address space to our own process and when we're running, but when you have extensions installed, those now have more address space as well. So right. sometimes some of that um, upper limit that we were hitting that would lead to out of memory exceptions was as a result of, you know, running Visual Studio with a large solution and a number of workloads on top of it, whether it's the SQL right. tools or some th- a number of different third-party extensions, all that add value. Now you can continue to use those tools and you're less likely to hit those out-of-memory exceptions. That's great. I'm just thinking about what, so what is it actually going to take for the extension builders to move to 64-bit? Is this just recompiling the code to make a 64-bit version or is it going to be more complicated than that? It's a bit more complicated. Um, there are, it's not unfortunately just the cases of recompiling. There are some APIs that have had to, you know, essentially break, you know, like Visual Studio has a, a very wide, broad set of public APIs. And some of those APIs were really designed for a 32-bit world. And, you know, mm-hmm. in moving to 64-bit, they were using the APIs as they are today would result in, you know, frankly, weird behavior because things would get truncated. Like, you know, a pointer would get cast to a simple int, which is 32-bits. And whoops, you could be missing part of your right. address range. Yikes. And so, but those yeah. changes are kind of mechanical by and large. Like, okay, don't use uint or, you know, an unsigned int, use int pointer or a type change like that. And, you know, there's quite a few of those, especially when it comes to components that interact with the native sides of Visual Studio through COM. Or unsafe mode. Yikes. <laughs> that ought to be fun. I guess we're also thinking about 64-bit COM too, right? Like Studio has got many layers to it over the years. And I, and I know you guys have been sort of digging some of those old layers out as well. Decomifying. There's an awful lot of COM, but there's a lot of COM in Studio. Mm-hmm. So to get DevEnv over to 64-bit means that a lot of all of that needs to be addressed wait, or has wait. already been addressed. I need to translate COM. Okay, so all of the millennials listening, this is an ancient technology – that was introduced in Windows 95 <laughs> that really f***ed everything up for developers. Provided new opportunities. We need to see it go bye-bye. Uh, come uh, on. That's how John Box said calm is love. That's because I don't know that he meant it, but he said Because he needed to sell it. Because <laughs> it needed to be sold. Yeah. It worked. And, uh, yeah. It might outlive us all. No, no, it did yeah. work, of course. It was a lot of work. <laughs> I just remember the engineers at the company where I worked looking at Com and saying, it's just these long binary strings of stuff all pointing to each other in this big cross-section list called the registry. It's like binary crap, and who knows what's going on in there? And secretaries are supposed to be able to understand this stuff. 
<laughs> that was like the 90s. <laughs> Early 90s. Yeah. When it was object linking and embedding. Yeah. Early. Yeah. That's yeah. still in many programs. All right. We, we need to yeah. come back to 2022 here or 2021. <laughs> Enough of that. But yeah, it sounds like you've, you've been doing the work under the hood for a while. So it's not like you decided, Hey, you know, it would be fun. 64 bit 2022. Like clearly there's been, you've been building up to this moment. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we actually had some incubations that we did over the last couple of years that uh, allowed us to move large sections of Visual Studio over to 64-bit. And it was through those experiments that we were able to show that, yes, we could kind of uh, make that make that leap with the platform. And as we were able to do that with the core platform, we started to look at the opportunities and when the right time was that uh, to make that available for customers. And so with Visual Studio 22 coming out, this was a really great opportunity to bring a, a whole new set of value to customers that, uh, that we knew would get customers really excited about what we have coming. Simon, you've been quiet for the first 24 minutes of this uh, conversation. Do you have anything to, to throw in there? I'm just kind of lurking here, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Anthony's kind of uh, talking to the point there that, you know, through this time, we have been making these kind of experiments. We've been doing our investigations. And so, as we've been moving through some of uh, the work here, we, we felt we were in a kind of a good position. And with the work that Andy's doing as well, as we've looked at the component tree and uh, everything that constitutes Visual Studio, being able to actually make that kind of push towards 64-bit uh, was a really good opportune moment for us to go for it. Do you anticipate that the developer experience will be improved, whether that's load times or compile times or, you know, less time we have to wait for Windows to shuffle memory around or, or, or bugs? Uh, uh, can you talk to that at all? I, I think the short answer is it depends. There are certainly some scenarios that hopefully will benefit from this more than others. For example, you mentioned shuffling memory around. Like a challenge with any sort of managed application is you know garbage collection. Objects have to be collected. That's typically results in freezing threads, and you know customers manifest that as like paused, un unattractive, non-responsive UI. So hopefully, mm -hmm. operations that were very, very intensive in memory won't have the won't have as much pressure on the GC to go collect stuff because there's more memory available. Um, so, but like, you know, we talked about, it's not a magic bullet. It's not going to make everything faster. Some operations in some conditions will certainly be faster and others not. In the end, every address is bigger now. Like there's an overhead to running 64 bit too. Yeah. It's not, it's not free. There's a cost. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, you get extra registers on the CPU, obviously, but like you said, the, the word size, it's larger, like everything's bigger. Mm -hmm. It's physically mean bigger space. Yeah. But I got an i9 with 128 gigs of RAM. I'm not really worried about that. It's mostly laying around and smoking cigarettes and waiting for stuff anyway, right? So you might as well, you know, put it to work. Uh, I would also point out, you know, one of the things that happened moving from 32-bit windows to 64-bit windows was they went to the purely signed driver model. Like, after we got over the hump of actually having good drivers, generally windows got much stabler. I wonder if switching to 64-bit for studio is also an opportunity like that to sort of shake off some cruft of the old systems and and increase reliability and stability. Yeah, I mean, certainly part of the big part of this is stability. Like, you know, the biggest thing that is impacted by Moon 64-bit is 
For sure, it won't run out of memory as much. It won't crash from scenarios where it's running out of memory. So reliability is a huge part. And moving mm-hmm. to 64-bit, yeah, we have to bring along other things. And some of those things will be opportunities to move to more modern libraries or different approaches to doing things. Um, so there is that opportunity uh, as well that you know each team hopefully will you know, evaluate and take as needed. And and this clearly this thing's targeted for this the .NET six timeframe. So we're you know .NET continues to evolve alongside Studio as well. And it's I, this this I, I think it's worth also mm-hmm. calling out that even though the move to sixty four bit gives us more reliability, there is so much more happening in Visual Studio twenty yeah. two that relates to performance and reliability beyond that. And you know what? This seems like a good time to take a break. So we'll pause here for this very important announcement. We'll see you on the other side. Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software. And what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit raygun.com to resolve issues faster and to deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin, and that's my friend uh, Richard Campbell. We're talking to Anthony, Simon, and Andy from Microsoft about Visual Studio 2022. And we spent the first half talking about 64-bit, so we can spend the second half talking about something else, because odds are you've done some other things. <laughs> yeah, I do think the 64-bit thing is overwhelming the message. Yeah. 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 And there's so much more to talk about. I, I presume, I mean, I'm just looking down the list, but you, you guys go. What do you want to talk about inside of, you've been working on inside the studio? Well, I think Simon should describe it because I think he's being a little modest in terms of his role and bringing us to the point that we're at. <laughs> you know, it was, you know, Simon's vision doc that laid out the direction for, for Visual Studio 22 that included among it uh, our 64-bit journey. Hey, that was Simon collaborative. So what else is happening in Digital Yeah, I mean that was a, a highly collaborative, uh, a highly collaborative effort there, Anthony. Stop trying to like pass the buck on you. Uh, I think that there's there's just like you were saying, there's so much in 2022 that we're bringing forward. So beyond the 64 bit, Anthony's team working on Git tooling. Lots of innovation happening in there. Um, we're Further extending what we've done with like IntelliCode, uh, what we've done with LineShare is extending. Um, obviously you've seen some commentary on the blog that mm-hmm. Amanda wrote where we, we're looking at more uh, enhancements in .NET 6 and in, in .NET, in C++ and Azure tooling. Um, we're doing cosmetic stuff as well to look at the UX to try and um, really simplify that down where we can make kind of themes and um, iconography a lot more um, kind of modern looking as well. 
we are we're going to do our best to go and bring that back. But even bigger, we're going to extend the size of the font at the same time. So we're going to go for it in a super large size. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, I mean, it is exciting. It's, there's a lot of stuff coming through. It is exciting. Yeah, for sure. I like the new icons. I like the new font. The new font has a, has a, is a, is a kind of a uh, needed update, I think. A good refresh. Cascadia code. Looks really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, I've gotten hooked on Cascadia code working in Windows Terminal. Right, because that, that you could set it up for there, and you, yeah, you get used to it real quick. It would be nice to have that in studio. Mm. Definitely a welcome addition. There's, I mean, there's been so much push for studio with this deeper and deeper integration into GitHub. Right, your your own people use studio extensively against GitHub, but there's a big chunk of enterprise out there that are still very much dedicated to TFS. Like, how does the? Can you talk about the interplay there about the different source code strategies? Uh, that the the field is using for Visual Studio, for sure. Um, and, you know, we with through Visual Studio as a client tool, want to make sure that we've got a great experience for all of the remote hosts. And so, whether your code is hosted in GitHub, Azure DevOps, or even Bitbucket, we want to make sure that you get a great developer experience using your Git tooling, as well as with uh, T, uh, with TFPC the Azure DevOps specific uh, version control system. And then you mentioned uh, TFS, so now Azure DevOps on-prem server. That that server also works inside of Visual Studio 2019 and will continue to work in Visual Studio 22. So, you know, from a from an end user developer tool, or you know, it, it, you know, we want to make sure that we can bring every developer into the into the family. And so, with that, we need to make sure we're working with all of those tools. Um, you definitely are seeing a lot of interesting innovation um, in GitHub, and we're um, kind of finding the right place where we can add value both in GitHub and the right places to enable it in, in Azure DevOps. But if you look at, for example, the new Git experience. Experience that we've been introducing through the last uh, started in uh, the 16.8 release of Visual Studio 2019. Yeah. We've been continuing to Very add nice. innovation through that, and we've been really deliberate about making sure that we're maintaining kind of the right experience between Azure DevOps and GitHub, so that all the customers that today are using Azure DevOps can continue to use this experience um, and be successful. So we test both of those end to end, and we get continuous feedback from the, both of those customers about where they need us to focus um, priorities, and we've been using that as our backlog. Um, and if there's an opportunity for a plug, you know, our developer community portal is really a really strong indicator that we look at internally to look at where our community is asking us to focus our attention on. We recently had Mads on talking about the feedback mechanism, just how direct that actually is. That when you when you post stuff about something you'd like in studio on the developer community, the dev team reads it. Like they may not be able to talk to you directly about it, but it does get seen. Yeah, Mads is a really strong advocate for the community. I mean, he really kind of tries to embody the voice of our developers internally. And so he, you know, makes sure that if there is uh, feedback coming from the community through bugs or suggestions, that the team is hearing that and acting on it and really kind of giving it the attention it deserves. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, other things you're working on for Visual Studio 2022? I was just going to add on to what Anthony was saying that it's been very interesting to actually watch the progression of the teams that have been considering things like uh, Git tooling in VS because they've really tried to focus in on um, really the, the user experience per se and how 
the tooling is set up in a way that you have the mechanism to get to activities very quickly, activities that you might be doing fairly often, you know, like local commits or something like that. And then uh, optimizing for that so that you still have a dock well of code that you can work with it. But at the same time, when you need to move on to something that's more kind of um, UI um, intensive or something that requires much more space, you know, like if you're diffing code or something like that, and they've looked at the the capabilities of how to bring that into a much more seamless system within the tool as well. So the work to do that is uh, done through lots of customer research, but again, how it ties in with things like the dev community, the suggestions feedback, and the actual bug reporting feedback as well. So we have lots of kind of channels that really feed into the system. And both Andy and Anthony here are, you know, literally on the end of some of those channels, uh, often looking at suggestions as we bring these and roll them up into the work that we do. So it is a a particularly important channel for us to connect, but also for us to get feedback directly and immediately for the product. It does seem like a tighter cycle these days. Plus, you have the quarter releases. So I, I hear these stories over and over again about, you know, something rises quickly in the community feedback area and it shows up a quarter later in a build. Like it, I think that's, that's got to hit people hard that it's that responsive. You know, once upon a time, there was only a new visual studio every year, year and a half to two years. Faster than that, actually. It's every month yeah. if you're in the preview channel. The preview channels are pretty rapid for sure. You know, as we try to look at, you know, constant innovation that goes in there for us to be testing. But, you know, we also have kind of a preview mechanism in um, in the GA channel as well. So, you know, in tools options, you'll find capabilities that are pushed there in order to drive some of this feedback. In fact, some of the Git tooling, I think we had as uh, tools options, right, Anthony? For- yeah, you can always experiment, turn on, try something out, see if you like it. If not, turn it off and you can, you can, you know, keep using the tool. So it's, it's a great place to kind of see what innovation is, is coming. Um, I'm particularly excited about some of the new, um, views that we have in the Git tooling that is coming out. So we had, you know, one of the things we've been getting a lot of ask from customers is around the ability to kind of understand and visualize your whole tree of changes. And this is something that today you have, you've had to go to other tools outside of the IDE. And, and a lot of developers really want that context in the ID. It isn't, you know, it's the I and integrated that they're looking for. And so, right. you know, we've been looking really hard. Simon mentioned kind of the, the workflow for users, exactly kind of where users need that context to be able to do things like understand their Git branch history, see all of that history in one place, compare that to the code changes that they're making. Um, and, and reducing that context switching that they today need to do between different tools that just adds time and friction to that inner loop. Can you guys talk about the, the changes or the updates that you're making in real-time collaboration, the live share feature? Um, just, you know, um, for full disclosure, I haven't used it yet. Typically on my teams, when we want to, you know, collaborate, we have a, you know, like a Zoom meeting or in Slack or Teams or something like that. And one person shares their screen and another person just writes the code. So what's the, first of all, what's the benefit of using live share? And secondly, what's new? What's coming? Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll take that question to start with. Uh, so 
live share, I honestly forget back in 2019 uh, when we started introducing live share. Um, and the premise for live share is really kind of your um, real time collaboration with a with, with a team, colleague yeah. or with more than one colleague. Um, there's obviously you know pair programming paradigms. There's um, desk check kind of paradigms as we used to call them. So the you know hey can you come and have a look at this with me as I'm working on something, give me some feedback. Those kinds of uh, workflows that we thought of. Um, <clears throat> Its uh, its value is particularly strong, of course, now with the fact that you can live share or create sessions that go across tools. It's it's part of the VS family, so it's not just a Visual Studio to Visual Studio paradigm. It's a VS to VS Code paradigm, and even to a, a web client VS Code in the web kind of paradigm as well. So the mechanism, the ability to share is pretty strong. In 22, if uh, memory serves me right, in 2022, yeah, we are uh, looking to introduce a little bit more capability here. So in VS, we're talking about, you know, having integrated chat channel as well. So rather than you having to pop out to some other chat client, whether it's Teams or, you know, Slack or whatever, and go through that context switch, what we're anticipating is you having a chat system that allows you to clearly be looking at your code, talking about what's going on, and immediately either jumping into a live share session or, you know, within the session, talking amongst yourselves as well. So is there an audio component to it? There's already an audio component in live okay. share. Um, that's if you look in the live share pane that's uh, kind of uh, tabbed in along with the solution explorer as well yeah. there is an audio section there so you can you know at least make calls to your uh, teammates as well yeah that's good i mean the, i mean the, i get it that you don't want to have to involve another tool with other accounts and you know all that stuff it's great if you can just do it inside visual studio but like i said right. i haven't used it so um so I have a couple of questions. Right. First of all, when you're doing a live share, do you, if I'm sharing my screen or whatever, my Visual Studio with my team, can I pass control to one person at a time or can anybody just jump in? Like, would Woody Zool like this for mob programming? Uh, you, you know, is this the kind of thing where everybody can just jump in and write stuff in different <laughs> places or, or, or is it one, is it, do you have more control? Um, in fact, even in 2022, one of the ideas is to increase kind of corporate control. So if, you know, sessions start as read-only and remain as read-only, those will be some of the capabilities mm. that we're looking at. But, um, yeah, to answer your question originally, yes, you as a, um, a host can control, you know, the, the actions that the guest can have as well. So whether they are, entering and have read-only mode or they follow you in a kind of mechanism throughout the tool or you allow them to take more control and you follow them. So there's there's a fair amount of control between you as a host and you as a guest. That's and really what cool. what you can allow and what they can uh, be, be denied of. But I have seen the demos where, I mean, two people can be typing at the same time in the same code window, right? If you allow it. I mean, this is not... The problem of you need a pilot. There's only one Absolutely. keyboard. Everybody's got a keyboard. They're on their respective machines. Right. But they, I, I, you know, you and I have done this in Google Docs and stuff, yeah, right? Like writing simultaneously sure. different pieces of things. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah, this isn't the it's not the screen sharing mechanism, you know, where one person has the uh the engine, the other has the sidecar. Yeah. Um it is kind of the dual mechanism. You can be typing you know, side by side. You can use code comments for your like cheap version of chatting right. with someone. And you know, the yeah. the key here to take away is you're not interacting with a video. You're interacting with your Visual Studio. And everybody's interacting with their Visual right. Studio. So you're not seeing like a, a, a video right. download stream that you now have to interact with and deal with all the latency and all that. No, so I, I, I really like this. It's also all of your personalizations are there yeah. as well. Yeah, precisely. That was all your personalizations. Yeah, Anthony's beating, beating me to the <laughs> Go ahead, Simon. <laughs> Stop it. Wonders that is delay. one of the benefits, of course, yeah. Uh, the fact that Anthony has his, you know, um, oddly flavored Visual Studio, he can remain in that oddly flavored Visual Studio while I'm using, you know, the the dark theme, as it were. Interesting. So, yeah, um, the way I have mine set up is not impacted when we're in a, in a live share. What about tools that are installed? Like, what if one person ha- who's driving has... Uh, <laughs> has um you know uh re- the refactoring tools installed from JetBrains and somebody else doesn't that's an interesting problem uh they remain independent to the person cool so the only thing being shared is that code window right yeah. everybody could inject keystrokes into that code window but your tooling is separate so if i've got resharper i can use resharper to do boom and if i'm just watching wow stuff magically appeared good on you not only that you could also do it across visual studio code as well so like think about like the front end dev uh doing a quick code review on some back-end services that they're collaborating on that's a place where you might have a developer that's working in VS Code most of the time, and mm. you ha- you're partnering with someone who might be working in Visual Studio doing some app services. There's an opportunity for them to work together and use Live Share from their tools with their extensions as they are, but share that context in the code window. But it's not even just the window that's being shared, right? Like it's the context, it's the point in the code, it's the text itself. And so you have the freedom to navigate individually, or you can kind of snap users to the same place to bring focus. You have a a variety of all, a lot of the same concepts that you think about in your Google Docs shared collaboration. Man, you know, all of a sudden I feel like, Richard, I've been slicing sushi with a spatula. (laughs) You know, we just did a humanitarian toolbox codeathon, and uh, one of the contributors to the two weeks ready project is David Paquette, who's one of the ASP.NET monsters, mm. along with Simon Timms and uh, James Chambers. And during the live stream, all of the ASP.NET members, all three of them, through live share, worked on the same code base, literally on the same chunk of uh, of code simultaneously during the stream. It must have been wildly productive. It, I, yeah, I think we were, they were struggling not to step on each other to some degree <laughs> yeah, as you do. Sure. Uh, I it, it does feel like it is, and I've seen this happen, where folks just get good at this. Yeah. You know, you and I writing copy for, for uh, uh, .NET Rocks promotions of things simultaneously. We've had a lot of practice. Yeah, we, have. we go really quickly today. <laughs> but and I, could, I imagine a team of folks working routinely in live share would just get really smooth at it. But it, take, it does take some practice. Under the hood, is it SignalR? Don't know. Anyone? <laughs> Web sockets. Bueller? Something. Yeah. Sounds like a perfect uh, signal arm. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't remember yeah. what's under the hood for this. Cool. Uh, there's no support cool. for flash mobs, though. And Richard, one of the things you should try, Richard, one of the things you should try if you get the chance is live share in a code debugging session as well. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. So there's some new debugging features and improvements, right? Yeah, for 2022, there sure will be. So, like, uh, I think for 2022, again, like, obviously, one of the big things is making sure we support all the platforms. You know, as you mentioned, like, .NET runs in more and more places these days. And, yeah. and so we want to make mm-hmm. sure you can debug your app wherever it's running. You know, if you're running in Docker, for example, which is you know, a lot of people building Docker apps that run on Linux. Uh, so we want to improve our support there. And, you know, for other, like, cross-platform applications, you know, if that's in, like, Blazor targeting or other things. Um, and so, you know, on the one side, we want to make sure we support the rich ecosystem there. And on the other side, there's just, I think, a bunch of like quality of life improvements we want to make in the debugger. Uh, you know, helping customers get sourced from a variety of different places, uh, improving some of our visualizers inside, uh, Visual Studio, as well as some of the, in general, like one of the challenges we have with the debugger, especially is there's a lot of tools in there. There's a, a lot of yeah. stuff and a lot of value that's not really utilized a lot. You know, it's kind right. of hard to know when you need to use which tool, like even saying like a conditional breakpoint or something. So one of the things we're really focusing on is trying to figure out how we can uh, make it uh, help customers, help developers find uh, the right tool for the right time. Clippy. Uh, make some, <laughs> Clippy, come and say like, what do you Clippy's <laughs> back. Maybe that's the solution. We'll just have Clippy or some sort of machine learned bot do it for you. Hey, even yeah, I, noticed you were, I noticed you were about to press F9. Can I help you with that? <laughs> Don't step in there. Do not go there. Go here. Um, but Sorry. like just simple stuff, like, you know, rearranging menus, making stuff more cleaner. So it's, you yeah. know, like a, a context menu that scrolls for two days. Um, and so like, I, not Clippy, hopefully. Maybe Clippy. It's the idea that went bad. <laughs> The fact that it's such, it's so memeable, people relate to it now. I think it's, it's now it's funny. Like you, you probably like to see it. That's very strange that it keeps coming around. Anyway, it sounds great. And I, uh, do you, do you mean to say that the debugging experience for Blazor WebAssembly will be improved? Um, so like the, the Blazor WebAssembly obviously, uh, runs in, uh, you know, the, our cross platform debugger. And so, uh, like we kind of have like, as we say, like two debuggers at the core, like mm. one's really targeting our classic like windows applications that's yeah. been around since you know a while. And the other one is a cross platform, which we share with VS code and other places. And so, you know, there's, you know, we generally trying to add more features because the old, the windows one has, you know, a wide range of features that have been around for a very long time. Yeah. Um, and so we've been improving uh, the cross platform one, which really helps with scenarios. Uh, like I mentioned for Linux and other places. Sure. Um, even if it's silly stuff like adding like set next statement or, you know, uh, things like that. Less calm, more love. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's old is new again. That's right. Yeah. So what can we say about arm? I mean, it's, it keeps coming up. Uh, that it's not supported? Yes. Still, I mean, there are going to be ARM window devices at some point. There, there have been in the past. Wait a minute. Yeah. All the ARM window devices I have are like these yeah. little tablet thingies that you if you're going to run Visual Studio on them, you're crazy. Uh, well, I wasn't thinking about running Visual Studio. It's just like making – that's why I wanted to talk about ARM in general. Okay. Making ARM apps. So, absence of uh, running that, Studio that ARM. That is completely supported. Like, for some time now, you've been able to use Visio to build apps that target ARM, both ARM32 mm-hmm. and ARM64. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, for, for those tiny devices, but also the newer Surface devices that are slightly okay. larger, um, still probably not the best right. place to run Visual Studio on, um, especially yeah, if you have no. to use a touch keyboard. 
uh, or on the screen keyboard or or the computer you know <laughs> yeah generally touch keyboard as, as someone who did fire up studio on like a motion computing tablet back in the day <laughs> yeah yeah pen programming not a thing 99 percent complete for 30 minutes yeah. <laughs> but yeah it is interesting to start thinking because you do have the the what the now rebrand you know branded as visual studio for mac which is literally a different code yeah. base i think out of the xamarin acquisition like you are opening the door bit by bit to how do you unify all that? I just can't imagine the tasks that you guys have in front of you with .NET 6 and MAUI and, you know, bringing Xamarin Forms forward into MAUI and all of these devices, and you have to make one IDE to rule them all. I mean, Andy's got bags under his eyes, man. He's like, it's <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't sleep, man. <laughs> it's not going to happen. The coffee's full. Yeah. Uh, the best like, eight hours of the week. <laughs> and the, one of the nice things is we are sharing more and more across all of those uh, platforms mm -hmm. because, you know, one of the things that we've been on, uh, you know, as a journey is moving things out of process. And you yeah. know, as they go out of process, that forces some sort of IPC, some sort of communication mechanism that's sure. independent of, you know, the OS. And so, like, parts of the debugger, they run in all those things today um, and more. You know, we once oh, had yeah. a debugger that ran on Itanium. <laughs> <laughs> Once upon a time, there was itanium too. Right? <laughs> yeah, and Mike, yeah, when when Intel was trying to do sixty four bit the hard way, this is cool. Oh. This is not only a look into the future, but it's a history lesson. <laughs> yes, it's true. That's what happens when four old guys get together and try to talk about Windows. <laughs> or oh, five. <laughs> five, yeah. <laughs> Some of us have trouble with basic math. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> you definitely don't need 64 bits. Uh, no. Stick with three. I blame the Malbec. All right. Well, what's, uh, what's next after this release? What, what are you guys doing? Are you going to Cancun and going to chill out for a while? You got uh, a lot of hard work to do. What's what's a vacation? It's COVID yeah. pandemic. <laughs> yeah. There's always more. What's what's next after 2022? I, I had Simon. Well, the first thing first for me is I need to get the COVID yeah. shot. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I would. I highly recommend it. Do you have things today? I mean, it is you know second quarter of 2021. We're talking about Studio 2022. You're always doing this triage. Like, are there things going into the V next bin past 2022? You're already triaging stuff out that won't go to 2022 yet. That you'd mind talking about. <laughs> I was say, that's the bin of dreams, um, though. <laughs> that's the, yeah, the, there the is bin, the bin of dreams. Like, <laughs> the, the drawer of dreams. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. Well, I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll start looking, you know, as as to what planning we would think about for whatever's next, that will be some time that we'll start thinking about mm -hmm. that um, as we get much more into the um, 2022 cycle, for sure. Well, this is great. But, yeah, I mean, you know, so much happens within within this kind of 2022 and the wave of 2022 mm -hmm. as we think about, you know, the backlog of items that we move as we put those in. You know, clearly, if there's huge investments and so on, those will be things that we'd have to think about when that might happen, if that's a much later release, for example. Um, but I don't have things that come to mind right now. 
Well, and I look at the 64-bit as this huge investment that you've been making over a long period of time, and it's going to come to fruition this time around. So I'm sure there's a couple other big ones out there, and I'm not thinking 128-bit because yeah. that's not a thing. <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Andy, Anthony, Simon, thank you very much for spending oh this hour with us and sharing your... Uh, your thoughts about Visual Studio 2022. I know that our listeners can't wait. Thank you. Thank you. Cool. Yeah, thank you. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.